Honor your father and your mother and your mother is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy the long life on earth. And you do not exasperate your children, instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism there. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done a good thing, stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. In addition to this, take off the shoes of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So the Bible doesn't really mention school, certainly not schools as we understand them today. Those sorts of formal education systems didn't exist in ancient times. In Bible times, schooling was more about training in a trade or in a vocation, learning the job from experienced people. But the Bible has a lot to say about wisdom. Proverbs, the book of wisdom, James, uh, the New Testament, books of wisdom. But wisdom is not about intellectual ability and memories. Wisdom is more about discernment. Someone once told me that uh, intellect is knowing that tomatoes are a fruit. Wisdom is not putting them in a fruit salad. <laughs> wisdom is about being able to judge between right and wrong, between beneficial and destructive, between peaceful and divisive. James chapter 3, verses 13 and 17. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Wisdom here isn't about intellectual superiority. Wise judgments like King Solomon was famous for. 
three that second born verse 17 again not so really living now the bible will be ultimate source of truth but it doesn't cover automatic equations <laughs> it doesn't give you the answer to how to explore the theme of admission in Macbeth. So let's talk a little bit about school and education. So what's education for? Well, for some people that like these words that we say, it's good to learn things, it's good to know stuff, but mostly it's for a purpose. It might be, so you can do well, tier one quiz. It might be, I know some people were like, it might be to pass the exam to get a grade or to be better at some education is just about giving you options, little tasters of lots of different things to see where your skills and talents lie. Some of it you don't maybe realize at the time. It's about learning how to learn, it's about learning how to critically think. It's about learning social and cultural context, what behaviors work in different places, how to work with people. What makes them tick? What makes you tick? Producing character. The boss is all asked what to do with following Christ. Just me wondering one about education. Well, I would argue that education isn't just for practical or academic things, it's for learning how to serve others. If you go back to verses 5 to 7 of Ephesians chapter 2, Whatever you do, do it wholeheartedly, as if that thing that you are doing is in service of the Lord. Now, not all of us are going to be directly in mission or ministry, but serving God wherever we are, whatever we're doing. Some verses describe service to God as in the normal work context. Not in something that you think of as special or God's work. Whatever you do is God's work. And Paul, who wrote this letter to the Ephesians, made the same point, almost the same words when he wrote to the Colossians. He said, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ who are serving. I think that's really important. Serving God isn't just for ministers and ministries. Serving God is for It's not just for grown-ups. It's all of us. And it's not just in certain places. It's everywhere. There's one thing that's really important about school and about things that happen when you're young. And it's square habits. The older you get, the harder it is to change. To change anything, change your mind. So the habits that are formed at school are really, really important. So what I would say is don't put off being the person you know you should be, being the person God wants you to be and created you to be, because you think you're too young or it's not convenient, or the timing isn't perfect, or you don't have all the skills yet. You may remember back in June, Tim Miller was here speaking to us, and he had this great idea that life is about training, not trying. So sometimes when you're not sure what to do on a 
is not going well. Oh, we're trying harder. We're training. We're trying those first little steps. And I'll do the marathon today. Just doing the one day run. I'm empty. I'm building on it. Whatever is planted in school will grow. So we need to make sure we're planting the right seeds, the right behaviors in ourselves. Whatever's happening around us, whatever the education is, planting the right seeds, the right behaviors when we're young. Weeding regularly when the wrong seeds are planted and pruning. And then look at if you're really safe to mention the thing of balance in terms of setting the foundation of life. And of course, seeing that you're not in school, don't put off what you know you should do, what you know you should be, until there's a more convenient time. Time's on. So, school is preparing you for a lifetime service to God. Service to God that isn't in the future, it's already going. And set your hearts early, wherever you are alone. If there's weeding to be done, best sooner rather than later. If there's seed that needs to be planted, get in the ground soon, not later. But if we're talking about schools and education, I think I've got to address the relationship between reason and faith. It's a little long topic, but I think it's important. So some people caricature the debate about the relationship between religion and reason as a competition that's two different sides, one or the other. Religion on one side and reason or science on the other. Never really mean that. Early Christian thinkers thought, I mean, Augustine is one who talked about faith and reason are both gifts from God, and they're both to be used. Christian missionaries and churches have often been at the, the forefront of education, not just faith education, but general education. And in more recent times, Christian thinkers, T.S. Lewis and John Lennox are good examples. They argue that Christianity isn't just rationally consistent. But it's an inevitable conclusion from rationally observing the world without prejudice. And observing without prejudice. That's a big half subject though in a week or two. But it's worth diving into that point briefly, I think. There's rarely such thing as an objective view or interpretation of anything in science beyond the very, very simple. We mostly view things and interpret things through filters of preconceptions. So the non-scientific belief systems are there, they actually surround many scientific positions, and those non-scientific preconditions, if you like, or decisions that people have already made in their mind, they're fundamental to the conclusions that they come up with. A scientific process may be flawless. But if the starting assumptions are wrong and narrow, or if they exclude some explanations or favor others, the results can't be claimed as unquestionable science. And here's a passage that you might think counters the view of rationality and matters of faith. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Mm -hmm. But those who are being saved is the power of God. 
Before I begin, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence. I will destroy it. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And for me, this passage doesn't say that faith is irrational. It's more about those pre-existing biases and prejudices. It says that God's wisdom is wider, more expansive than our narrow human wisdom. God doesn't ask us to leave our intellect behind and follow a blind faith, but to recognize the limits of human understanding. How small it is compared to God's wisdom. So materialists try to draw a limit to rationality at the edge of science. Ironically, that's a non-rational and non-scientific decision to make. But who do we trust? Because all that isn't a reason to discount all scientific authority. There's a real danger in the world. We see it all too often of basing our own judgment or that of unaccountable internet experts ahead of other sources just because we disagree with some things they say or because we've made mistakes or because we think we're not immune to biases. Biases and cognitive er errors are fascinating and important subject. Anchoring bias, con confirmation bias, which is only believing the things you already think are good. Uh, fundamental attribution errors, all these things are right in the modern world. And modern communication makes these ideas spread more quickly. Echo chambers are the common phrase you may have heard of. In some cases, it's almost impossible to have a rational discussion because people on different sides of the debate just rule out things that they think they don't agree with. There's, there's not admissible, quick to dismiss evidence. The subtlety and nuance and considerate, submissive, peace loving debate that we read from James chapter 3 are usually early casualties in these debates. Now, if you go away from this today thinking that that all applies to other people, and there's other people who are subject to these biases, then maybe I haven't explained my point clearly enough. Being aware of our own biases is key to critical thinking and the pursuit of truth in an earthly manner. And that brings us back to biblical wisdom. In humility and in prayer, using the discernment and intellect that God gives us, Keep ourselves on course. That verse from James chapter 3 again Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility and in humility. A couple of verses to sum up. First Peter, but in your hearts revere Christ the King. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the question you have. Who is the gentleness and respect? That verse starts with Christ as the center, the baseline. But then there's a reason that follows. The gentleness and respect that covers the intellect. Here's another thing that's clear throughout scripture. This is a glorious fact. Salvation does not rely on us being rational, wise, or getting everything right, or being clever, or anything else other than good. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for it is by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. 
and all fire works for the real world. Amen. So strong a sacrifice. I'm not sure I really addressed that, have I? I mean, there are places of tender service, places where habits are formed, places where we need wisdom, but sacred. A couple of definitions of sacred. A, something that's dedicated to a religious purpose. I'm not sure even faith to a large amount. Religious rather than secular. School might not feel like it meets those conditions. Did your life meet those definitions? Dedicated to a religious purpose. Religious rather than secular. How do we bring a little bit of God to our place? Wherever that is. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking about salt and light. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So early Holmes spoke about service to God as an act of, sorry, service to your earthly masters um, as an act of service to God. But here it's more than that, it's an act of witness. It's how we tell the story. People may see the body of Christ from the outside. We often mess up in our faces. We tell our story through our mission and in, in action, through our behaviours as well as words. <coughs> and a couple of weeks ago, Paul Hamill from the bridge talked about the body of Christ. He made the point that children are part of the body of Christ. Not a separate category where they don't belong to the body of Christ until they're a certain age or reach a certain standard or become church members. So if children of school and those who work in school are part of the body and are serving God in their place, then what's the role to the rest of us, the rest of the body of Christ, who are not on the top line in schools? Line brings us to a different analogy. Going from the body of Christ to the army of God. And back to a reading about the full armor of God. We live in a secular world. The education system is secular. And at school, you're at the height of peer pressure and desire to perform. There's so much else that you buy. So it probably feels more like a fight than being in a sacred place. It might be like a one-sided fight, like a bombardment. And all you want to do is like get your trench and dig with other people. Well, it comes with the full armor of God, but armies are just of infantry. They don't just have a finger on the top of the armor on. There are tacticians and logisticians, there's artillery support. And the most important to me when I was overseas was just family, friends. So what's our role in this army of God? Serve those who are on the front line. I, I suggest we start with prayer and prayer. And then just explore prayerfully where you can do more. The bridge is an obvious starting point. Two weeks ago, fresh in our minds, but it's not the only one. Our soldiers in this war, Go back to the whole army of God, starting at verse 10. 
I'm not going to go through the full armor of the one picking up each point of it with a different analogy. I'm just going to make a couple of points. Verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Not your own. You don't have to be strong to do this. It's easier said than done. Be brave, be courageous, of course. But God tends to use those that feel weak in themselves. Tends to use those that lack confidence. Moses, Gideon, Jeremiah. I'm going to read a couple of verses from, from two of those examples. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord, and I've never been eloquent. Neither in the past nor since you spoke to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who gave them sight for making blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak when the teacher walks away. The order is interesting that last Now go. I will help you. Don't wait until someone plays and then go. Moses was told, Go. And I'll be with you. I'll help you. I'll teach you what to say. Jeremiah was the same. He said, Alas, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to Jeremiah, Do not say, I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Again, the order was there. Go. The words were there. And then just one quick point from verse 14 the belt proof. So we started talking about wisdom and intellectual education. Back to truth there. It's the thing that holds everything together. In a Roman soldier's clothing, uh, in a Roman soldier's armor, it holds the clothing together and holds the breastplate in place. It's for carrying weapons. It's for carrying little pouches with coins and rations and tools. It's also a mark of distinction. Belts in the army were a mark of what unit they were in, a mark of status and respect. Even today, the army would have badges and colours on, on belts to mark who you belong to. So, truth marks who you belong to. Next slide, please. It held the sword of intellect, or the sword of wisdom, or the sword of effort, the sword of spirit, or the word of God. The land can't describe schools as sacred place, but it does have a sacred function because the preparation there is serving God and preparing us to serve God more. And school brings us sacred duties to be salt and light, telling the story even when it's hard. And to support those parts of the body of the church that are, that are in service, even in school. And in the pursuit of knowledge, we should be guided by prayer and humility. A fine wisdom that comes from heaven, which is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. I'm going to end with verse 10 from our reading. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty word. Amen. 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 Amen.